This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Wednesday, November the 22nd, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, a new bike lane in Toronto is causing pedestrian safety concerns. AODA Alliance Chair David Lebowski will give you the details. And the conversation on the intersection between housing and the environment continues. Arno Kopecki explores issues being addressed by the Task Force for Housing and Climate. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. A little bit of fun, a little bit of serious, just the way you like it. Let's get to the top story of the day. The federal government released its fall economic update yesterday. The top line item, the government is still projecting a $40 billion annual deficit. Finance Minister Krisha Freeland did announce some new measures aimed at housing. The federal government is earmarking $15 billion for low-cost loans to developers and $1 billion for affordable housing. The government is also expanding its decision to remove GST charges off rental developments to include co-op rental housing. Minister Freeland understands that housing is a huge priority for people across the country. Housing is so connected to affordability for Canadians. And that is why our focus is supply, supply, supply. Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh was unimpressed with the fiscal update. It does not meet the urgency of what Canadians are going through. It doesn't really meet their needs. And it's another example where Canadians are feeling really disappointed about the Liberals not meeting the urgency of what they're going through. And most of the money that they're promising is delayed for off into the future. Conservative leader Pierre Parliev took aim at Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the overall economy in his critique of the update. He promised to help the middle class. He has demolished the middle class, Mr. Speaker. That is the reality. Inflation, after hitting 40-year highs, is back on the move. The economy is now shrinking. And if you add in per capita terms, it is plummeting, Mr. Speaker. You heard Parliev talk about inflation in that clip, a reminder that Stats Canada did put out their October reading yesterday. It did show a slowing in year-over-year inflation, the number 3.1% in terms of prices going up. Now, most of the slowing was driven by the cost of gas, around 7% lower year-over-year. RSM economist Tu Win thinks the number should give the Bank of Canada some pause on the overall interest rate picture. For the Bank of Canada, I think this is definitely good news and there's no need for them to hike interest rate any further. They are most likely going to pause in December. 
The Bank of Canada's final interest rate decision of the year is set for December the 6th. And one more story from the world of federal politics. There's new polling data about how Canadians feel about pausing certain parts of the carbon tax. Sarah Ritchie runs the numbers. The Liberals announced in October that they're pausing the carbon price on home heating oil for three years to give people time to switch over to electric heat pumps. Polling firm Leger surveyed more than 1,500 Canadians online asking a range of questions about the carbon price and the pause. 63% of respondents say they support the move and it's most popular in Atlantic Canada where the policy will have the biggest impact. About a third of homes in the region use heating oil. 70% of the people surveyed say they would support the government expanding the exemption to include all other forms of home heating fuel. Sarah Ritchie, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Stay tuned because Alex Smythe will bring this topic to the roundtable in about 90 minutes. And one more story. It's a bit of drama from the technology world. There has been a huge back and forth at OpenAI. The board removed their CEO, Sam Altman, last week. A few days later... He's back, and the board's out. Rob Hawley has the latest. Sam Altman now returning as CEO at OpenAI, just days after the board there fired him. Since then, virtually the entire company threatened to leave. On X, Altman posts that with the new board that's being named at OpenAI, and along with the support of the company's single biggest investor, Microsoft, he's looking forward to returning. There is an incredible podcast that was released earlier this week, called Plain English with Derek Thompson that took a deep dive into the corporate structure of OpenAI and unpacked some of the drama. Now, that was released before the latest news on this story, but definitely worthwhile checking out. Plain English with Derek Thompson after Now with Dave Brown and Kelly and Ramya and Access Tech Live and everything else on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. That's the podcast you should be listening to. And that's going to relate to today's daily poll. But before I frame up today's question, let's go back in time to what you were asked yesterday at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You were asked if a rideshare or taxi service has a foul smell. Do you complain about it? 43% of you said yes to the driver. 21% of you said yes in the app, and 36% of you are cowards like me and said no. So you just heard me talk about a new podcast. Maybe you don't listen to Plain English with Derek Thompson. You really should. It's like one of the best podcasts out there in terms of making you smarter every time you listen to it. But I'm sure you've been in this situation, right? You're sitting at a bar or a coffee table talking to your friends, and they say, oh, I'm listening to this fantastic podcast. You've got to check it out. It happened to me last week on vacation. My friend Corrine recommended Things Might Get Messy. And she described it, and it sounded great. And I have yet to hit play. Maybe we'll get there. I'm getting to it. But that's the question at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. If a friend recommends a new podcast, do you listen to it? Yes, right away. Yes, eventually. Or no, not at all. Alex Smythe, I've got about 10 to 15 podcasts that are in my rotation, and usually I squeeze them all in by the end of the week. There's not a lot of room for a new podcast in my life, so I'm somewhere between yes, eventually, but more often than not, no. 
Yeah, I'm I'm typically on the no. It's like, oh, that's great. You're enjoying it. Fantastic. I'm not going. To. <laughs> you do you, baby boo. Yeah, exactly. And it also too. I mean, part of it is who is uh, suggesting the podcast because there's there's a couple people in in my life specifically that will send me like requests or suggestions constantly, and so I'm more likely to drown out their opinions because I'm getting it at least once a week. Oh, you got to check this out. You got to watch this. You got to listen to this. You know, and uh, it's it's not just with podcasts. It's it's with all forms of media. And then sometimes I, I pick it up and I enjoy it. But, you know, more often than not, it's it's going to be by the wayside. I, I don't have enough time to take on a whole new podcast. It's part <laughs> of the situation, right? Because these podcasts typically are not just short five, ten minute little pieces. These are usually a minimum half an hour, maybe a few hours long in total. So, yeah. um, you know, and, and there there's something nice about kind of discovering something for yourself. Now I may down the line accidentally come across it, but I find if I'm going to press play, it needs to come to me almost in in a way, even if it's a one that is suggested, if it pops up on my feed or, or if it's a video podcast on YouTube, I, I may be more inclined to press play if I see it there. I'm not going to go out of my way to search for it. You know, Laura, the caveat that I would put on something like this is everybody on Earth is going to recommend to you what television show they're watching, but odds are that's going to be behind a paywall. So it's harder to get my hands, eyes, and ears on. But in the case of a podcast, generally they're available on every single podcast platform. If it's a YouTube podcast, it's literally one clip, uh, one click if they send you the link, and yet somehow I still can't motivate myself to do it unless I really, 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 really trust them or they're very, very very, very insistent. So I think for me, it comes down to three factors and, and maybe an order of importance. So interest, time, and relationship to the person sending the piece of material. So if someone sends me something and it's just right in line with whatever I'm excited about that month, I'm probably finding time to fit that in like pretty quickly, right? But if I'm pressed for time, well, it's going to go to the back burner. But if it's someone that is um, important to me and they say, hey, I really want you to listen to this or hey, listen to this so we can talk about it, uh, I'll make the time for that. So for me, it's really all three. And I have to say, I have to, you know, I'm probably pretty selfish in that it just does depend on if it's something I'm kind of motivated intrinsically to listen to. Yeah, like the, the topic and subject matter has to, at the very least, interest me right I, I i'm not going to listen to and I, and I say this with love i'm not going to listen to a makeup podcast because like what am i actually going to get out of that yeah i mean i will if someone that i care about tells me it's important to them then i will listen or if they say um you know i want us to have a conversation about this but sometimes someone sends you something sort of oh how do i even put like this it's like they're trying to teach you something or they want you to watch this fitness video <laughs> and you're like yeah no <laughs> yeah alex laura's on to something there don't try yeah. to teach me anything don't try to make me smarter i'm smart enough yeah, and I want to be entertained. I don't want to have to learn something or feel like I'm being taught or directed to learn something from somebody else. If it's something that's truly interesting, okay, you know, maybe you'll pique my attention. But again, still, I, I'm the kind a guy that I want to discover it on my own, on my own terms. If it's, it, I, I'm, I'm really not going to be swayed to tune into uh, to something that someone else suggests. I don't know why. You know, it is. I, I, I enjoy, and I probably would enjoy the content they are suggesting, but 
I, it's just something intrinsically. It's like, no, I'm going to do it my own way. You yeah. can't tell me what to do. You know, it's, it's kind of that, that mentality I have from podcasts for whatever reason. There's no reason for it. That said, this is the week to recommend podcasts to your friends. Because of American Thanksgiving, most American pods are going to shut down as of Wednesday. So if it's a daily pod or one of those pods that drops three times a week, there's going to be a gap. So this is the week. This is the week if you want to recommend a podcast to a friend because of American Thanksgiving. Go make your moves. It's a week to be an influencer through and through. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, that's where you vote on the poll. You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone. I know your phone is probably within hand's reach, arm's reach. I have two phones right next to me, right now. It's not that hard. You pick up the phone and you give the show a call. 1-866-509-4545. 1-866-509-4545. Don't tell me you never get asked to your opinion on these important matters. Don't say there's never any consultation that you have no influence on what gets said on the mighty airwaves of Now with Dave Brown. That opportunity is there for you. 1-866-509-4545. Your voice will be heard from coast to coast to coast, Atlantic, Pacific, and Arctic. Do it. Do it. I dare you. Coming up after the break, a new bike lane in Toronto is causing pedestrian safety concerns. David Lepofsky of the AODA Alliance will talk about the issue. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in beautiful audio at amiplus.ca. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Disability advocate David Lepofsky filed a Freedom of Information application earlier this month. It was done in an effort to push the Ontario government to release an official report. The report is a review of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act. An interim report was released in March. The full report has yet to be publicly disclosed. And David Lepofsky of the AODA Alliance is here to tell you more. Hey, good morning, David. Nice to chat with you once again. Always good to uh, get to talk to you. David, let's start here. Why do you think the province of Ontario is withholding this report? I have no idea because they're not talking to us about it, but it is required by law that they make it public. Every government, including this one, who's gotten one of these reports earlier, made it public more quickly than this. They, this is a record-breaking delay. Uh, but I once had to go to court uh, over another report they got that they withheld for longer than they should. So unfortunately, it's not the first time I've had to resort to legal uh, efforts to get them to do what the law requires them to do. Rich Donovan authored the report. What have you heard from him? Well, he can't tell me about the contents of it, but I've heard that he did submit the report on the 6th of June. That's a public fact. Um, so the government's had it for over five months. And uh, it doesn't take five months to translate it into French, probably a couple of weeks. 
and uh, so there's no reason why they can't be making it public now. And like it, it so what I've done, uh, the section 41 of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act requires that it be made public. They're not doing that. So I filed a Freedom of Information application, um, which they've got 30 days to get back to me, though on the website it says they may not comply with timelines, which is a sort of an open government declaration. There is some irony. There's some irony. There's some irony in that writing on the websites. Yes. What is the process from here? Maybe pull back the legal curtain a little bit. Where does the request go from here, even understanding there could be uh, violations of the timeline? Well, they, they've got to then first figure out how long it would take and how much effort to find it. Well, it will take no time. So if there was a lot of searching, they would have to estimate a fee to produce it. But they know where it is. They know what it is. It's in the minister's office. It'll be in the deputy minister's office. It'll be in the assistant deputy minister's office. They all they would all know where it is. So there's no search time. There's no effort needed to find it, and there's no cost to provide it. Um, so uh, then they'd have to decide if there's a legal exemption that entitles them to withhold it from the public. Well, there isn't one, because Section 41 of the AODA requires that it be made public. This is what in the law is we would call a no-brainer. David, Sort of circling back to the first question here, obviously you and I cannot put ourselves in the minds of the folks there at Queen's Park, but even if something in the report was utterly damning or embarrassing to the government, at the end of the day, isn't transparency more important than optics on an issue like the accessibility of an entire province? Well, you know, Dave, it... it... It's it's even more than that. The fact is, Rich Donovan rendered an interim report, which the government made public within eight days of receiving it, and it had extremely damning conclusions. It's where he made findings, but we are far behind where we need to be to become accessible by 2025. He said, it's shocking that the government has no plan to get to that objective, that we've been let down uh, across the system. What this new report is, is his roadmap for what recommendations he makes for how to fix this. Now, it, it, even if the government doesn't agree with the roadmap, they should put it out there and uh, let us all comment on it. I don't know if we're going to agree with it, agree with some of it, not agree with any of it, but at least get it to us. The further delay in making it public means further delay in this province becoming accessible, which is the problem that the Donovan interim report has publicly revealed anyway. So uh, it, even the idea of covering up embarrassment makes no sense. David, let's turn from the broader provincial issue of the AODA to something a little bit more local when it comes to infrastructure. There's a new bike lane on a section of Eglinton Avenue in Toronto. The bike lane itself is on the same level as the sidewalk. You released a video on your YouTube channel of your experience walking on the sidewalk with your white cane. As the video progresses, you are seen walking onto the bike path. The surface of the bike lane and sidewalk are different colors from each other, but there are very minimal differences in texture on the ground between them. So it's not necessarily distinguishable for pedestrians. David, I, I know I kind of set up a lot of the, the crux of the issue there in the intro, but what do you find most troubling about this form of urban design? 
Well, it's shocking that in a city where it's against the law to ride a bike on a sidewalk, that the city of Toronto designed a bike path on the sidewalk. So you want to give the wrong message to cyclists? I can't think of a better way. Uh, but let's go make it worse. It's a design which obviously endangers blind people mm. because um, it, it may be visually clear to a, a person with 20-20 vision uh, where the bike path is, but using my white cane, I don't have a clue where it is. It is There is not a clear cane detectable uh, difference. And even if the city were to install some sort of raised line, that that alone wouldn't solve it either, because you wouldn't know just because there's a line which side of the line is the safe side mm -hmm. and which side is the dangerous side. The solution, which has always been the practice in my experience, at least as far as I know, is you build the bike path on the road level. So as long as I know I'm up that step on the sidewalk level, I know I'm safe. Now, if you want, of course, we want to protect cyclists from cars, so you can build a barrier between the bike path and the roadway where the car traffic is, and you have some brakes in it for pedestrians to be able to to uh, cross the street and so on. But that's not what they did here. And it, it 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 what is especially appalling is in the face of our video, which, by the way in 48 hours has gotten over 4,000 views. That's record-breaking for our any videos we've produced. Um, the, the, the thing that's appalling is the city, instead of saying, oops, we got it wrong, has doubled down. They've said there's a cane detectable uh, difference. No, there isn't, and you couldn't rely on it even if, even if you felt one, because in Toronto, the sidewalks are so irregular, tactily, that it can be smooth one meter, bumpy the next, and whatever it is this year, after a year of winter, you'll have cracks in it. Mm. Like, it, it, you just can't rely on this stuff. The other thing is the city's basically said publicly in the media uh, something to the effect that, well, people who get are on the road and get hit by cars, cyclists, suffer worse injuries than, I, I'm paraphrasing, in effect, people who are might be injured on the sidewalk. So in other words, they've decided that cyclists are, are are the ones they want to protect. Pedestrians on the sidewalk, oh, well, their injuries won't be as bad. And we're not expendable. Mm. And it presupposes that you got to sacrifice either cyclists or pedestrians like blind people. And that's ridiculous. You come up with a design that protects both. There's always this back and forth and push and pull and what I would call sort of an unfair binary or an unfair trinary in urban design that says we must pit cyclists, pedestrians and cars against each other rather than looking for better solutions. Uh, David, this kind of bike lane is starting to pop up a little bit more in modern urban projects. I know in the city of Ottawa, when they expanded and renovated Churchill Avenue, they created bike lanes similar to this, but with a big, big difference. Very, very wide sidewalks and a number of, not necessarily full barriers, but a number of barriers between the physical sidewalk and the actual bike lane and a distinctive texture on the ground in between. I 
am someone who supports interesting and modern universal design and city design and urban design, but what's popping up here on Eglinton is not that. It's it, They didn't think to themselves, well, if we're going through this full process of redeveloping Eglinton Avenue, let's make wider sidewalks a priority, and then maybe, maybe we can explore the idea of bike lanes that are on a raised level, but this isn't that. This is just really, really poor, and what I would call, uh, for fear of editorializing, sort of typical Toronto. Never think about the sidewalk, never think about the pedestrian. Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this. First, they claim they did think about it, which means there's a real competence problem here because they, uh, and they're trying to defend it. Say, oh, we did think about that and we do care about that and we're making things more accessible. In fact, they're making them less accessible and more dangerous. But the other thing is, uh, the problem with putting any kind of bike path at sidewalk level rather than at road level um, is that for one thing, as I said before, it's hard for a blind pedestrian to know whether I'm on the safe side of a line or the dangerous side. The easiest thing to do is what we've always had, which is design it so that if I'm up on the sidewalk, I know I'm safe. If I'm down on the road, I know I've got to, I'm in danger. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the, but the other thing is, uh, and this is what a lot of this ignores, uh, I regret, um, a lot of the blind people out there or people with very severe vision impairment aren't people like me who've been blind for using a white cane for upwards of 50 years. They're people who may have just been doing that for months or a few years. And they don't all have instant knowledge of what that pattern bumpy thing on the road, if they did put something in, what that means, what the code is. And there's no universal code. It can vary from mm -hmm. street to street mm -hmm. or city to city. Um, so it, it, all of this it spells one word, and the word is danger. Mm -hmm. And I think people with disabilities, like blind people, deserve to be protected from danger. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to argue with you about that one this morning, uh, David. David, thank you for this. I always appreciate your perspectives on these provincial, regional, and national issues. Thank you for the time this morning. Thank you. That's David Lepofsky, the chair of the AODA Alliance coming up after the break. An eye surgery or an eye procedure is a daunting, daunting prospect. Shaina Saravanamuthu wants to give you some perspective on her recent experience with an eye surgery. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There are lots of different kinds of eye surgeries, eye procedures, and eye treatments based on various forms of vision loss or eye conditions. Cataract surgery is the most common eye treatment available. Shiny Saravanamuthu recently underwent the procedure and wants to share her experience. Shiny is a lifestyle columnist talking to you from beautiful Montreal, Quebec. Hey, good morning, Shiny. Good morning, how are you? Shiny, I'm great, and I've got the same exact question for you. First and foremost, before we dive into any of the granular detail, how are you yeah. feeling after the procedure? Better, it's been almost a month. Uh, slowly recovered. Uh, I'm just adjusting to the changes that I didn't expect to go through. What were some of those changes? 
So um, I got cataract surgery on my left eye. And when we spoke to the doctor, he said he'll be able to correct my vision. So I wouldn't need, like, I'd be able to see far without glasses and said I would need like reading glasses, like, you know, just to read, but didn't really realize the impact of that. I can't even see my own wedding ring or my engagement ring without some sort of glasses. And at the moment, I, I'm just wearing regular glasses from like shoppers, uh, like to Zoom because I can't get prescription glasses till a month from the surgery, which is this Saturday, which I'm going to go see an optometrist to see what prescription I can get for reading glasses or if I need like progressive, what the situation is going to be. Mm. So just adjusting to that, like has been hard i can't i don't even use my phone much at the moment because like it's kind of hard the glasses don't really help with all fonts not all apps are accessible so you know the fun stuff yeah you're you're kind of caught in this gray area this in between yeah. right because yeah. you'll forgive me shiny i, I want to say you also had an eye surgery a couple of years ago yes how, how yes. did that maybe change your mental space going into this one if at all <laughs> It's funny because the last surgery was very intense, right? Like uh, I had a macular hole and so they also did the cataract at the same time, but the macular hole surgery was like three and a half hours long. I was under, it was intense. I saw the stitches on my eye. So going into this, I was thinking the worst. This surgery was like 10 minutes, did not give me any drugs. I was awake, like had Oof. conversations with the doctor while he was doing it. Like it was very different. Uh, less invasive, 100% less invasive. Um, I just had a lot of drops to put in uh, compared to my last surgery. Like my, I kind of scared my husband saying like recovery is going to be horrible because that's what I was used to. And uh, he was like, this is a piece of cake. So it was very different, the recovery. And cataract is a surgery that so many people do. They do them in private clinics, hospitals nowadays. So like it's very easy quote-unquote easy compared to the big surgeries that some of us have gone through before we never use the word easy on now with dave brown we say straightforward right. a little more straightforward. straightforward nothing in this world is easy but some <laughs> things can be a little bit more straightforward yeah. uh shiny sorry i shouldn't be making jokes here i shouldn't be making jest we're talking about an eye condition here but what about any symptoms post-surgery maybe headaches or other yeah. post-surgery symptoms so I've had like severe migraines and I think it's because my eyes are getting used to this new vision. Uh, my right eye is very blurry, doesn't really have much vision because of the hole. So my left eye now is doing all the work. Plus wearing these dinky reading glasses, my eyes are probably like, what the hell are you doing to me? Uh, so it's probably like a lot of adjustment. Um, I didn't go to work right away. I only started going to work three weeks later. So that was a huge adjustment to my eyes, staring at a computer for eight hours. Uh, so that really gave me a, a severe migraines. And I never used to really get migraines. So that was a nice little shocker. Part of your recovery process involves, I, I'm probably going to mess this up in terms of uh, multi-syllables, pulsed <laughs> electromagnetic field treatment as part of the yes. recovery. What is that and why is that part of the recovery? So I actually discovered this after my first surgery back in 2020. Uh, so uh, one of my friends who was actually going through cancer uh, discovered it for herself. It's basically uh, a treatment where you're lying on a mat uh, and they send out little bursts of electronic uh, frequencies to your body. And so what this does, these electromagnetic pulses talk to your cells. And so like for me, who has a retinal eye disease, RP, 
my case, some of my cells are either dormant or they've died off where I have no night vision, whatnot. So what the doctor does in my case is I have the big mat that I lie on, but he also has a pad that he puts directly behind the back of my head. And I hear the electromagnetic pulses going through and it goes towards directly to my brain and the back of my eye. So he directs the electronic magnetic fields to the back of the eye to help wake up any cells that aren't haven't died off yet, but just need to be re-energized to help with any inflammation in my eyes, to help with any light that goes into the eye. So overall, it, uh, it's a treatment that helps those of us with eye diseases to kind of wake up any of the cells that haven't completely died off and it just helps energize the body helps with any blood flow circulation a big thing is inflammation so after Mm. surgery it's very likely that you do have some inflammation some pain due to that they give us drops for that but uh i decided to do this at the same time just to help the recovery uh healing process uh end a little sooner shiny big or small any kind of eye procedure is going to yeah. concern people right just, just yeah. by its nature it's such a sensitive part of the yeah. body no matter what your level of vision is i don't even like putting eye drops in like like that yeah. like that's I, I don't wear contact lenses because i don't like things going near my eye yeah. what are maybe some tips or advice you have for people as they're preparing for something like a cataract surgery or in the recovery process what are some tips you want to share uh, recovery process, hundred percent. I would say, obviously, like you have to wear an eye patch and go to bed, and like sometime the eye patch comes away. If you're someone that rubs your eye, maybe wear an eye patch before the surgery to kind of get yourself in that mindset of an eye patch being there and not to touch that part of the, your face. Mm. Um, also, uh, with the pain management, uh, I also at night I massage my my forehead, my eye area, and my face area with castor oil to help with any inflammation. Um, Also hot compress. I have these eye masks that you put in the microwave and they heat up and it's a nice compress to help with dryness of the eyes or any inflammation or any pain in the eye. And uh, just kind of watch what you eat. Also, I cut out dairy uh, just to help with like to reduce inflammation in the body. Oh, my gosh. So especially before and after surgery, kind of cut down on that dairy just to help with that. Wait, 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 Shiny. You're telling me that if I want to get eye surgery, I've got to cut out cheese? Yeah, just because it causes a lot of inflammation in the body to begin with. So kind of cut it out just to help yourself out. I didn't realize today's show was going to turn into the Joe Rogan podcast. We're talking about (laughs) inflammation. Get in the ice bath. (laughs) but Uh, yeah so yeah and then the PEMF if you have it like available near you look into it I know in Quebec uh, we have the same doctor that has one in Quebec City and one in Blaineville which is a little far from me as well it's like a 25 minute car ride when there's no traffic but there's always traffic so take about an hour but uh, it's worth it in my opinion uh i know uh there's a lot of research that's been done you can look it up uh, search pemf for eye diseases and it comes up with different uh different benefits for us and how it can help us or at least like keep our vision stabilized for a bit yeah the pulsed electromagnetic field treatment i definitely preferred uh your acronym there to uh, to, to, be able to <laughs> read the full word okay shiny i had to hold this one and i'm sorry i'm making so many jokes today i'm full it's of beans okay. You said the word shoppers before in regards to your eyeglasses. Please, yeah. Shiny, you live in Quebec. Don't make the office de la langue francaise bang down your door. It's pharma-pri. <laughs> pharma-pri. 
I was gonna say Favre Pri, but I wasn't sure if everyone on here would understand it, so I switched to <laughs> We appreciate the common parlance. Hey, Shiny, I'm sorry, you're being vulnerable and I'm being a joker today, but thank you. Thank you for coming by and stopping by and talking about no your problem. surgery. Glad that you're doing well. Thank you. See you guys soon. That's Shiny Saravanamuthu, lifestyle columnist in Montreal. Coming up in 60 seconds, Alex Smythe will have the weather report of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index lost about two-thirds of a percent in trading yesterday, led by industrial and utilities stocks. Toronto's TSX index fell 136 points to close at 20,109. New York's Dow Jones average gave back 62 points, and the Nasdaq dropped 84. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index gained 97 points, and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 72.9 cents U.S. Federal Finance Minister Christia Freeland stood and delivered her Liberal government's fall economic statement in the Commons yesterday. Her document outlined measures aimed at boosting the construction of homes and affordable housing. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh says the fiscal update doesn't meet the urgency of what Canadians are going through right now. Unions representing hundreds of thousands of Quebec public sector workers, particularly in health care and education, are on strike again today. The walkout has closed schools and delayed surgeries in Quebec. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Thank you very much, Karen. I'll have a little more information on that public sector strike in Quebec in about 20 minutes on the regional news update. But for now, let's head over to Alex for the weather report. Alex, it was a pretty sweaty walk to work this morning in the GTA. Yeah, Dave, you know, the we're experiencing a bit of a above-seasonal kind of spell, so to speak, in the Golden Horseshoe. So uh, today I want to kind of take a look at the forecast for the rest of the week and into the weekend for the Golden Horseshoe region. So today, you know, yesterday we were experiencing a lot of rain and, and moisture. Today is supposed to be mainly cloudy, but again, above seasonal temperatures, so people can expect to feel the highs around the sevens, the eight degrees throughout the region. Um, that said, there is also a chance of rain, especially to the southwest uh, portion of the Golden Horseshoe. So your Kitchener's, your Hamilton, your Niagara Falls, could all see some, some raindrops today, but the rest of the region should be relatively dry. Now, as we move in to tomorrow, it's going to be a mix of sun and clouds. The temperatures around the same highs, a bit lower, between five and seven degrees. But with that sunshine, should be quite pleasant. But it's when we get to Friday is when that temperature does drop. So the region is gonna be feeling highs below zero. So think minus two, minus three, things like that. But again, the sun will be out, so relatively pleasant. It's when we get to Sunday that there's expected to be some precipitation in the region. The question is, what form is that going to take? Is it going to be rain, snow, or a mixture of both? Right now, the temperature is set to be just hovering just above zero. So it could be rain, it could be snow, or it could be that ugly mixture in between. So time will tell as we get closer to that Sunday. But needless to say, prepare for the rain or moisture on the weekend and enjoy the sunshine now. Mm, thank you very much for this, Alex. Coming up after the break, holiday festivities are taking over Vancouver, including a couple of described performances of Elf the Musical. 
community reporter Amy Amenti will give you the scoop. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Vancouver area is doing more than just decking the halls for the holiday season. The Capilano Suspension Bridge will be decked out and canyon lights will be on display at the base of Grouse Mountain. Vancouver community reporter Amy Amanti has a few more of the details. Hey, good morning, Amy. Hey, good morning, Dave. Welcome back. Amy. I'm glad to be back, and uh, because now we're within that one-month zone of Christmas, I'm starting to get a little more excited about the holiday season. Maybe I gave a little bit of a spoiler there off the front end, but what's on deck for the Vancouver area over the course of the next few weeks? Yeah, you know, um, holiday season is upon us. I'm one of those people that likes to start my holiday festivities December 1st, <laughs> so... Um, uh, but, you know, the Capilano uh, Canyon Lights thing is, while it's Christmassy, it's more uh, it's more wintry than it is Christmassy, um, which is kind of kind of nice. So the Holiday Lights has these um, lovely twinkly lights that are non-secular, um, and it's it, they're displayed in what they call the treetop adventure. Um, so you imagine that the the, the Capilano River, right? It's a big sort of a suspension bridge. One of the it's a world class suspension bridge uh, over the over the river, and um, and they deck it out with these like high level LED lights. So when you go at night, they glow like you wouldn't believe. And the treetop adventure is really like a bunch of bridges that connect between the treetops. Um, so you, you, it's everything that you can imagine when you go. There's a whole bunch of festivities on the ground. There's festival stuff, there's music stuff, there's activities, there's food, there's all sorts of things. Um, this is my neighborhood. This is my backyard, um, essentially. Um, and I always wanna do this except it's not super accessible. And so I, I called to ask about accessibility. And what I thought was really astonishing, Dave, was while they take the access to entertainment card, which gives you the free companion rate, they don't have any accessibility. So what's interesting to me is that they want to invite people with disabilities in, except that you can't access it if you're a wheelchair user. They don't have any sighted guide. So I wonder to myself who with a disability is getting in with their access mm. to card. Um, but I have opened some doors with uh, the manager in the new year to see if we can talk about some staff training. So I suppose we're making a little bit of headway. So I still would encourage people to go if you're sort of maybe have an invisible disability, um, perhaps, and you have some able body ability to walk the treetops because it's quite spectacular. So the Canyon Lights run at the Capilano Suspension Bridge from November the 17th to January the 21st. The cost ranges from $27 to $68. And if you want more information, capbridge.com, capbridge.com. Okay, Amy, staying with the winter theme, fans of the 2023 holiday film Elf will get a chance to catch the musical in Vancouver. Yes. Vocalize providing two described performances, plus a social event, as you do, as you typically do with the Vocalize folks. So like do that. Why, why do you think Elf has become such a modern, classic holiday film? 
I, you know, I think there's something really interesting about the film in terms of it being a bit of a comedy, a bit of a, uh, you know, it, it brings a lot in. It brings that family feel in. It brings a comedy in. It brings in the the holiday spirit in. Uh, has one of those sort of well-rounded, you know, the moral of the story is type films. Um, so everybody really loves Elf, and this is, you know, follows the the theme of the movie, except it's a musical. Um, and uh and it's been on our stages here in vancouver already for a couple not a couple of weeks but 10 days um and so it's getting like super popular reviews already um shows are selling out fast so folks still want tickets to this um the great thing about what the arts club is doing is they hold seats for vocalite ticket holders mm. so there are some tickets that are being held for purchase for Vocalite members. So this is December 3rd and December 8th, 2 p.m. if you want to go to the matinee on the 3rd, and it's an evening show on the 8th at 8 p.m. And the tickets start at 25 bucks. Um, they, we also take the access to card. So if you want to bring a, a companion, then you get a free companion rate ticket. And, um, and Vocalize is going to do a social afterwards. So join us at the Binford Burger Lounge if you're coming to the December 3rd show, which also happens to be International Day of People with Disabilities. And, um, and we'll just, we'll have a group dinner together. So I think it'll be a lovely, a lovely evening for folks to come join us. Busy day on December the 3rd, no doubt. I imagine Amy Amanti is going to be a busy person on December the 3rd. Uh, you oh, know, I, 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 I want to backtrack to just sort of the, 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 the source material here, the, the film yeah. Elf. Number one, that was at an era in Will Ferrell's career, the lead actor in Elf, where he was just throwing yeah. heaters, like everything he was putting out was just funny stuff. But some, for something to be a classic, you said it's got to have a moral, it's got to have a story to it that's going to resonate and stand the test of time. And I think ultimately Elf is one of those movies about remembering the importance of joy and being a kid at heart. And even as grinchy as I can be a little bit around the oversaturation of the holidays, I think mm -hmm. it's a film like that that's a reminder of when someone takes utter joy in something, don't get in their way. Yeah, you know what? That it's kind of a it's kind of a nice reminder of that, Dave. If 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 we're if we're being honest with each other, it's kind of a nice reminder of that. So it is one of my favorite holiday movies. And you know, with all the movies that you see oversaturated that start, you know, in November and go through December, that's one that I will watch many times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some of them I'll go, not this one again. Yeah. And some of them I'll go, yep, that one I'll watch again. So. Like Amy said, the performance run December the 3rd and December the 8th, those are the uh, Vocali Live Described performances. Stanley Theatre on Granville Street, one of my favorite streets. For more information, you can call 604-687-1644. That's 604-687-1644. Okay, Amy, one more holiday-themed yep. story. A Vancouver tradition making a return. The Christmas Express <sighs> will feature a choir of over 80 singers and they're gathering around a giant Christmas tree. How do you think visitors can maximize their experience at the show? Oh, you know, the, the singing Christmas tree is like legendary here in Vancouver. And if you haven't experienced it, I have never been able to get to go because the minute tickets go on sale, they're almost like they're gone. It's a free concert. And, um, so you got to get your tickets early or know somebody who's going to buy, like not buy, but like go get the tickets. And the, like, you got to imagine it's a stage. This is all volunteer run. It's out of the Broadway church. 
and the stage itself, the tree is 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 ten layers tall, ten ten stories, and each story is is a line of choir singers. So it's literal, right? And so everybody uh, is standing or sitting on a layer of this Christmas tree, which is why they call it the, the singing Christmas tree. And that's why it, this year's theme is the Christmas Express. And so they do all the holiday songs from this tree. And of course, there are all sorts of things happening around the tree, like, um, you know, acrobatics and skits and all kinds of other things. And so, you know, you really have to have to uh, be able to um, uh, pick your performance date. There's only six, uh, only eight of them and early kind of early December 1st to 10th, various times of day. Um, but go with a group of friends because I, I'm told that that is um, how you enjoy it the best. If you can get a group of folks to go together, turns into a sing along. Um, but I, I am told that this is one of the most joyous things that you can do in the city of Vancouver around Christmas time. Vancouver sct.com vancouver sct.com to learn more about this little bit of a festive event amy always great catching up thank you for making the time this morning uh, stay dry out there in vancouver i will do my best dave thanks so much <laughs> that's all you can do in vancouver this time all of you the year. can do your best that's amy manti community reporter in vancouver british columbia in 60 seconds laura bain shares the latest news in the world of entertainment but first a new video game console a new video game console, say all your syllables, Dave, wants to get you moving. Brian Clark has the details in Tech Trends. When you power up the next playground, you become the controller. The whole idea behind the system, getting kids and families moving and playing together. Next playground, I have to use camera to track motion. So it also tracks multiple people at the same time. Company co-founder and CEO David Lee tells ABC News, while this kind of thing has been tried before, today's technology really brings it to life. Now we can actually track motion with a single RGB camera connect to a neural processing unit. We're spending more like AI chip. Games centered around Peppa Pig. Jump and giggle. Lead the way for the youngest players. Or you can try out your own magic with Neo Witch. Where you have to move in specific ways to cast spells. There will also be fitness games and sports like basketball. Pre-orders for the next playground open now for $180. With Tech Trends, I'm Brian Clark, ABC News. Don't make me do exercise with my video games. Thank you for this, Brian. Much appreciated. Let's turn to the world of entertainment. Laura Bain, Billboard has revealed their lists for top artists, top songs, and top albums of 2023. And you've got a couple of the highlights. Yeah, that's right. So uh, these are the Billboard year-end chart. Uh, so for Billboard, the year runs from the first week of December until around the last week of November, which is why we're seeing these right now. And if, like me, you were a bit curious, it's based on a point system calculated uh, on airplay and sales. Don't ask me more details about that. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, it's all algorithmic. There's, there's an algorithm. Um so the number one song based on the Billboard uh, Hot 100 is Last Night by Morgan Whalen. So country music certainly seems to be enjoying a moment. I may have, I may have contributed to the airplays uh, and, and downloads that uh, put that one towards the top. For sure. Um, so number two, Flowers, Miley Cyrus, uh, Kill Bill by SZA at number three. And honorable mention, have to throw back to a segment we did last week, Fast Car, Luke Combs coming in at number eight song of the oh, year. Oh, wow. Cool. Uh, so the top album was uh, 
No Surprise, One Thing at a Time by Morgan Whalen. Makes sense since that was the top track. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, something that stood up out to me was that there was significant K-pop representation in quite a number of the charts. And the band or group 5050 uh, became the first female K-pop group to ever make it into Billboard's top 100 year-end charts. They came in at number 44 with their song Cupid. And I think we've got a little clip. I can dig on that. That's pretty cool. I haven't heard that song before. Well, it's kind of funny because I thought, oh, you know, I really don't know a lot of K-pop. But when I heard that track, I thought, oh, yeah, I, I know that. I've, I've heard that in some top chart playlists that I've listened to on <laughs> Apple Music. <laughs> uh, Laura, you know, you mentioned the Morgan Wallen there and you mentioned a couple other artists. I'm kind of surprised there weren't more mentions of Taylor Swift on some of these charts. Well, Dave, we are getting there. Oh, okay. Um, good, so good, good. I didn't think we needed to to play a T Swift clip. I think we we've heard quite a bit. Um, so Taylor Swift coming in as the overall top artist, and so she won in 2009, 2015, and this year 2023, and that sets a record, making her the first artist ever to win in three different decades. Her domination oh, wow. continues. Wow. Um, plus, she's the only uh, she's only the second artist ever to win this category three times in a row of top overall artist, um, and the the first one was Adele. So you know, peeling back the curtain a little bit, I'm the entertainer entertainment reporter here. <laughs> I'm sifting through a lot of source material every day, and I feel like a good fifty percent of it involves Taylor Swift and I don't know she's dating a football player or something Travis Kelsey of the Kansas Travis Travis Kelsey of the Kansas City Chiefs (laughs) yeah yeah I'm I'm joking it's (laughs) it's everywhere um so I sort of feel like I've hit peak Taylor Swift saturation in terms of media stories but what about you Dave have you uh have I know you're kind of a Swifty have you hit saturation or do you still want more recently converted right recently becoming a Swifty because I went to go see your era's tour movie and really liked it Laura you know I think you set that up so beautifully there in regards to the media focus or the social media focus versus Taylor Swift herself I am starting to feel a little bit of fatigue similar to yourself that when I'm scrolling through social media because I follow a lot of football and because I follow a lot of entertainment I'm getting just a lot of sort of nonsense Taylor Swift content so is it possible that the distinction can be drawn that I'm not yet sick of Taylor Swift the musician I'm not I'm only recent discovering some of these songs I think I listened to Antihero about 14 times on the weekend and was just feeling it but maybe I'm getting a little bit sick of the Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey narratives that are popping up. And hey, maybe we're guilty of this and the fact that you and I are even having a conversation about oversaturation, but but I feel like maybe there's a lot of nonsense and narratives existing right now where people are just looking for clickbait or looking for clicks or looking for views rather than like truly grappling with some of the really compelling art that she's making or some of the very interesting things she has to say about society. 
Yeah, I really agree with that distinction. And I like your point there. And I've tried to avoid bringing too many Taylor Swift. Well, and I think there is a distinction that can be made. And I think I'm just feeling a little tired about hearing every single detail about her relationship and, and blah, blah, because I'm hearing so much about her personal life. It's almost putting me off when I hear her tracks, but mm. that is probably unfair. And I, I do think a distinction can be made. Laura, I like it when we can wrap up the segment on the same page. Thank you for this. Thanks, Dave. That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report coming up after the break. There's some labour strife in Quebec, but there's some labour positivity in the province of Ontario. I'll share those stories for you in the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and a little K-pop on the way out the door. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. That's in beautiful visual form. If something more audio only is your gem, don't forget you can always catch the stream at amiplus.ca or maybe you're listening to the show in the future on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. Hello from the past to wherever you may be. I'm Dave Brown. It's Wednesday, November the 22nd, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the conversation on the housing crisis and the climate crisis continues. Arno Kopecki is going to tell you a bit more about the task force for housing and climate. It's actually a continuation from a segment Arno and I were doing a few weeks ago that was uh, so heated or so in agreement or so passionate that it needed a sequel. So here it comes. Well, not quite here. It's a few minutes away still. And what hobbies do you have for the winter? Have anything interesting lined up? Jenny Bovard, Megan Gilmore, and I offer some suggestions on some activities to keep you busy during the frosty season. But the hour begins with the regional news updates. Starting in Ontario, public elementary school teachers in the province have reached a tentative contract with the government. Education Minister Stephen Lecce is happy with the deal. This is what matters most to the government. We've said from the beginning our priority is to keep kids in school, to provide a stable, positive learning environment that goes back to the basics of learning. Union President Karen Brown is also content with the deal. We were able to uh, achieve many uh, gains in, in working conditions for our, our members to, along those priorities. So we, I believe our members will be happy. Uh, the ultimate decision is, is going to be theirs. I do believe we've seen some significant improvements. The union will share details of the agreements tomorrow, and then members will get an opportunity to vote. Over to Quebec. A public sector strike is underway in that province. 400,000 employees are off the job in sectors like education and healthcare. Healthcare union president José Fréchette feels negotiations are at a standstill. We want to negotiate, we want better working conditions. It's been difficult. We've been at the table for the past year and nothing really has moved. Treasury Board Chair Sonia Labelle thinks negotiations are about more than just money. 
They're putting all the focus on the salaries right now for the uh, argument for the strike that they are putting forward. But I mean, when we talk to nurses, when we talk to uh, teachers, I mean, they're talking about their workloads. They're talking about what they have to go through day to day. Daycare worker Vanessa Gianchoppi lays out what's at issue with the strike. It's not even a matter of, oh, we want to be comfortable and have lovely lives. We know you don't get into this profession for that reason. But when we can barely afford to work, and some of us, it costs us less money to stay home than to come and do our jobs, something that we love to do. Um, it's, it's, a little, it's a little insulting that we're just not being taken seriously. This iteration of the strike is expected to continue today and tomorrow. More employees plan to start their own job action later in the week. And finally, in the Atlantic provinces, the PEI government has tabled a $1.3 billion capital budget that describes its infrastructure priorities for the next five years. Premier Dennis King says the money will mainly be spent on housing, healthcare, and schools. In the healthcare sector, $167 million has been set aside. That includes money for the construction of the Mental Health Campus Project, the QEH Emergency Department Expansion, and a new acute care hospital. $176 million has been committed to building more social housing. That's your look at the regional news. Here comes Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Brock, para-athletes are staying busy at the Para-Pan Am Games in Santiago, Chile. You want to offer up a little bit of an update here, starting with the track and field events. Yes, so there was a few medals yesterday. Anthony Boudreaux won the bronze medal in the men's 400-meter T5 two TS2, pardon me, the category, which just means that that's their... Um, severity level and that's where they get put in their category uh, then we have Jesse Zazu who won the silver medal in the men's discus throw in the F37 final then we have Michael Barber who won a silver in the 1500 meter uh, race this g- game uh, race was on CBC Gem and Dave I have to tell you that this was a race where Barber led the entire time except for maybe the last two 300 meters uh so there was a bit of a a disappointment for him but still silver medal is a big big deal that's got to be frustrating on 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 especially the running and endurance sports to know that okay i'm going i'm going i'm going and then you just feel somebody catch you in those last couple hundred meters and you just don't have the gas tank to get there yeah yeah totally it was brutal it was it was heart-wrenching to watch and it was only in the last, as I say, two, two to 300 meters that he was overtaken. Uh, the last track and field medal was Liam Stanley, who won silver in the men's 1500 T38. So lots of success on yesterday's track and field. Oh, right on. Okay, what about over on the goalball courts? Uh, Canada men, def- uh, sorry, Canada women defeated Chile. Yeah, yesterday, 10 to 1. They will advance to the quarterfinals. And then the men will also advance to the quarterfinals, which you can catch on CBC Gem later on today. Right on. Okay, you gave it a pretty big update on wheelchair rugby yesterday, and a rolling murder ball continues over there in Santiago. 
rolling murder ball continues indeed uh, yesterday they took on the u.s the final score was 46 41 for canada this means they will play in the uh semifinals and they will take on brazil now brazil is normally a high-powered team but they brought a young and inexperienced team so canada should take care of business as they did in the round robin but we'll see when you get into the semifinals, you never do know what may happen. So, And what about your old friends in the world of Bocha? We are continuing in Bocha doing really well. Lance Kreiderman, BC1, won his semifinal 5-2 over Bermuda yesterday. He will play for gold in a rematch against uh, Mexico. This individual played him in the round robin, and the gentleman from Mexico won the game. So... Lance will be looking for a redemption on that side of things. If we're looking at Marco Despaltro, he lost to Colombia 8-0, and he he would play for bronze against his countrymen. He uh, lost the bronze medal game against his countrymen as well, so Julian Carbanu won the bronze medal, and unfortunately, Lance or uh, uh, Marco was fourth place. So lots going on there in the bocce world. Picking up some medals for sure. Wait, Brock, give me a little bit of clarity there. So so uh, ju- uh, there was an all-Canadian bronze medal game there. Correct. So they they ended up playing on, on the opposite sides of the semifinal. If they both won, they would have played for gold. Wow. But because they both lost, they played for bronze. So one person won, obviously, and one person did not. That's got to be tough, man, because they do a lot of training together, spending time in Montreal, Olympic Stadium, other training camps. That's got to be a tough one to go up, go up against someone that you've been training with for years and years and years and will be continuing to train with for years and years and years. Yeah, and uh, Marco is Julian's mentor to uh, uh, top all of this off. So that's wow. a little bit of uh, a little bit of competitive nature that happens in the world of bocce. Uh, before we move off of Bocce, I just want to tell you that Allison Levine uh, won her matchup. She's in the BC4 category as well, 7-2. to She will play in the gold medal game as well. Danica, who's a BC2 for Canada, he also won his semifinal, and he will play for gold later on today as well. So lots of medals in the world of Bocce uh, going on. They had an opportunity to get as many as five medals because... That's just how things went in. And so things are are going pretty well over there in the world of bocce. Uh, Brock, let's bust out the calculator. What does the medal count look like for Canada? I had to do a little bit of calculations. Math is not my strong suit, but I love counting medals. So the uh, medal count is 16. We are currently at three gold, four silver, and nine bronze as we sit here. And one more question for you, and this is a little bit broad. You mentioned CBC Gem uh, broadcasting a couple of these events. I know when I was preparing to talk to you about this, I was using the Canadian Paralympic Committee's uh, Facebook page a little bit to get a couple details for myself. I was looking for a couple recaps here and there. But my goodness, Brock, there is a lot going on with the Parapan M Games, a lot of different events. How are you finding the viewing experience and the following along experience? So... I am using uh, CBC Gem as my source that I am watching it on. They have uh, three channels that run on any given day, uh, and you can pick and choose which events you want to watch. The challenge is 
CBC tells you what you're going to watch. So it's not as if you can say, oh, I want to go over here and click this tab that says, you know, uh, para-athletics. They choose between the three channels what you are consuming and what you are not. Uh, and this is a bit of a challenge. The The puzzling thing for me is all venues have a running camera and commentary on it because you can see CBC will be flipping from one thing to another. And sometimes you jump into something in the middle. So I'm my my hope is that in the future we would sort of have the ability to have like little tabs that would say i want to go watch this i want to watch that as opposed to you telling the consumer what they're going to watch because there was situations yesterday where there was a ton of canadians and different things and and we only had the three channels to choose from and some of it we didn't see. Like, I didn't see the matchup between Yulian and Marco, which I really wanted to see, but uh, it wasn't given to me as a, as a source that I could uh, look into. So. Yeah, and I don't think you're asking for too much there, Brock, especially because the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver, that feature was readily available on the consortium's website. It was so easy to watch whatever the heck you wanted to during the 2010 Olympics. So I can definitely see the frustration you're expressing there that it is 13 years later and somehow it got worse. And and I I want to say I'm I'm grateful for the coverage. It's been oh on certainly all day. certainly we're like we're not we're not taking a swipe and at CBC here. Like the, the coverage is appreciated, but the technology and capacity should be there to give people true on demand access to these games. And, and I would say too, Dave, that I think there's a level of resource use too, because if you're running all these cameras all the time and having somebody commentate them, you're 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 I, I the only word that's coming to my mind is is an aggressive one, but you're you're wasting resources because you're you're letting it run, but then nobody can consume it because like the the national sports organizations, whoever they are, cannot broadcast their own uh, their own sport because CBC has the rights. So the NSOs are sitting there going, well, wait a minute, we want our sport done, but then CBC goes, no, 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 we have the rights. We'll 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 give you uh, enough time uh, on CBC Gem. Everybody wants to consume whatever sport they want. Yeah. So it is a bit of a challenge in, in the end, I would say. Brock, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thank you. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk coming up after the break. What are the two topics that I ramble on about the most on the show? Housing? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, oh there's rambling. What about climate? Yep, I talk about climate and the environment a lot, too. Well, Arno Kopecki is going to tell you a little bit about an organization that is tackling both sides of that coin. It's the Task Force for Housing and Climate. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Don't forget, if you ever have an opinion about something you hear on the show, you are encouraged to share it. I have extremely thick skin. It's not just blubber. It's actual thick skin between your opinions and my soul. So don't forget, you can reach out 
via the telephone, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. You can send emails, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or if social media is more your thing, you can find the network and the show on Facebook and Instagram at Accessible Media Inc., or you can catch us on Twitter or TikTok at Accessible Media. You know that I like talking about housing. You know that I like talking about issues surrounding climate change. Well, I don't know if likes the word there, but it's an important issue and I talk about it. Last month, journalist Arno Kopecki and I explored the approach to building more sustainable cities and came to the conclusion that climate and housing are not necessarily a binary. You can walk and chew gum and combine those two things to find some solutions to both the housing crisis and the climate crisis. It's not just Arno and I coming to that conclusion together, uh, flapping our gums. There are people who are actually tackling this issue. The task force for housing and climate, and Arno wants to highlight some of the work they're doing. And Arno, as I mentioned, is a journalist based in British Columbia. Hey, good morning, Arno. Good morning, Dave. How's it going out there? Arno, I'm great. I'm so happy to be continuing this conversation. And by the way, yes. if you out there in listener land or the viewer vortex missed part one, feel free to check it out in the podcast. You got to scroll down a little bit, but you'll find that it was a great chat with myself and Arno. So Arno, let's talk about this task force, the task force on housing and climate change. What kind of work are they doing? Well, so there. This is a task force. It's a. It's sort of a nonpartisan group, conducted of, uh, comprised of pretty high-profile people. So, uh, Lisa Rate, who is a former cabinet minister in the Harper government, is one of the co-chairs, and the other one is Don Iveson, who's the former mayor of Edmonton, who's a really progressive guy and and certainly not a conservative. And then they also have a team of housing experts and people from like insurance agencies and and banking world and and housing policy. Uh, you know, the former. Uh, city manager of Toronto was on it. So really, really high, powerful group of people. And they're looking at exactly what we were talking about. They came together. Uh, it was right around in the fall when I was starting to think about this stuff. I learned that this task force had come together and was also their whole mission is to, um, th their mission statement is basically, look, Canada needs about 5.8 million homes uh, by 2030, uh, which happens to be the year of the Paris Agreement targets also by coincidence. They say we need almost 6 million homes by 2030 to ease the housing crisis, uh, but those homes also have a huge role to play in the climate crisis, uh, just as we've been talking about here. And so they're looking at, okay, well, how can we do that? Because the fast, that would require building about 700,000 homes a year, which is like twice as fast as the fastest Canada has ever built homes before, which was way back in the 1970s. So they're like, obviously, we have to do things completely differently in terms of, uh, you know, how do we roll out construction? How do we finance? How do we pay for this? How's this going to work? Uh, so we talked a lot about density last uh, when we last spoke. And so that's a big that's a big part of their game. Um, they're, so they're talking about we need to densify these houses, but we also need to figure out, well, first of all, is Canada on board with this? So they've done some really interesting polling and find that Canadians, yes, are indeed, you know, in agreement with the ideals here of like, let's build these houses and make them green because they can either be part of the solution or part of the problem. If you build 6 million homes and they're all clap traps that, you know, fall apart and burn down and because you built them halfway into the forest or in a floodplain where they wash away, um, then you're just going to need to build 6 million more, uh, you know, 20 years down the line. So they're trying to avoid these these little things. 
and come up with some hardcore uh, actionable suggestions uh, by early winter, basically. Mm. They're really on a tight time frame. Um, so that's kind of the rough idea of of the of the task force is coming up with like how can we actually put this principle into action? Arno, whether it's national or provincial, where do building codes fit into this equation? Yeah, well, exactly. Building codes are huge. Uh, so often building codes are provincial. Uh, the province, since we spoke last month, uh, the province I live in, British Columbia, has passed sweeping building codes. Um, well, zoning zoning uh, stuff to, to force densification. But building codes are what you need to, to not let people build cheap, dirty, green, uh, non-green homes. So there is a role that the federal government could play in terms of passing uh, federal legislation that sort of forces the minimum quality of home up because the market will, you know, always default to, uh, you know, what's the cheapest way that I can build a home. And it seems that the cheapest way you can build a home is to use, you know, uh, cheap materials, not much insulation. Don't worry about how, you know, energy efficient it is, no solar panels or anything like that. Um, Don Iveson, what he talked to me about was, look, these homes have to be affordable. Uh, the bottom line is, yeah. you know, there's the housing crisis is about affordability. So we can't just try to build like a whole bunch of super expensive, nice, fancy homes. Nobody can afford them. Um, so affordability is a huge thing that his point was partly that the federal government needs to get in and just like spend money. We saw some of that in the budget yesterday, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, but the other thing is then to in order because it seems that you know I think we're going to get to this, but there's often this that uh, sort of like the unsquareable circle that green homes are more expensive. So you can have one or the other, but you can't have both. But Don Iveson's point was, you know, green homes are actually cheaper if you look at them in the long run. If you look at the lifetime of a home and you build an energy efficient home, maybe it has solar panels, maybe it has a heat pump, but, you know, all the different things, just really good insulation. Your monthly costs are going to be a lot less. And banks are in the business of financing things over, you know, your average mortgage is, is about 25, 30 years. So over that lifetime, if you or, uh, structure, you know, your mortgage or your financing accordingly, whether it's for a private homeowner or for the developer or whoever, um, there are there should be ways to, to make a home cheaper to buy upfront if it is greener and better. And yeah. even though it is more expensive to build upfront over the lifetime of the home, it's going to be cheaper to operate. And so the financing should reflect that. And that was a big part of what Don Iveson was talking about. And so he's out there talking to, you know, central bankers and and uh, the people in the finance world. Yeah, there, there he is. He's, you know, Don Iveson's a really interesting guy. He's a really progressive record on housing. And he's on, you know, um, he, you know, uh, the fight against homelessness is a big part of, of what he does as well. So, you know, that was a big part of our conversation. He was saying, you know, we, there's a lot of unhoused people in this country and we can't you know they have to be at the at the at the heart of uh, anything that happens. Yeah, well, it's one of these things where you need to be thinking about the housing crisis is not simply people who are experiencing homelessness or people who are working class trying to find a rental or even people who might be middle class who would just like to be able to buy a family home or something resembling a family home with you know a few yeah. more feet than uh, say 500 square feet in a condo for a family totally. of four. Uh, but Arno, totally. I do like what you talk about there about the margins, right? That something might be marginally more expensive in the moment, but if the home is built to last for 100 years rather than 25 years or 50 years or needs an immediate reno because it was built so poorly, that yeah. like that's a cost that has to be factored into the equation. It's crazy that it's not 
factored in right now. And it, to me, it, it's really uh, reminiscent of like pretty much every environmental solution that we talk about, you know, across the board of industry. And uh, it always requires a little bit more upfront investment that then pays off down the line. And every time that seems to screw us, you know, I mean, uh, it, electric cars are similar that way. You know, if you can afford an electric car, it's basically free to run after that. You know, you're not paying $2 a liter of gasoline. Um, that's just one example. There's so many like that there. It's this upfront cost, and it it really inhibits uh, progressive behavior, and and this is a perfect example. And so that's one of the huge things that the task force is looking at is how can the banking community uh, recognize that and 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 work that in, and how can the government create you know some subsidy programs or. Uh, some pilot programs where the government would sort of act as a bank and and finance some of this stuff themselves, not to do the whole six million houses that way, but just to show the financial community that, hey, look, this can work. You can actually yeah. like structure your loans this way and make still make money and it's safe. It's a good bet. <laughs> Banks in Canada making money? That never happens. These guys are <laughs> know, right? poor every quarter with their billion <laughs> well, we dollars. Sure the banks are happy. <laughs> we got to make sure the banks are happy. Uh, Arno, uh, for the sake of time here, we've only got a couple minutes left, but, I, sure. but, but uh, ironically enough, the next question I wanted to ask you about was speed. Right. Getting yeah. getting yeah. How, houses built quickly. If it's five yeah. or six million in the next seven years, that's yeah, a speed, that actually, that's a speedy, speedy that pace. Yeah. So, so, so it, what is the correlation or connection between more sustainable homes, greener homes and the actual pace of building? Or is that a binary? Is that a contradiction? Well, it's a challenge. I, I don't think it's a binary. Uh, I, I don't think the two are necessarily Look, uh, the, the people I spoke to a couple of builders as well as Don Iveson about this and their thing was, you know, right now in, in Canada and, and much of the world, every house that gets built or every townhouse complex or every apartment building is unique. We build it from scratch. Somebody sits down with a, you know, with an architect and a, and a structural engineer and all the different people and they figure out all the specs and da 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 and and then they build it. And then they go back to the drawing board for the next project. Um, and that needs to change. We're going to have to start looking at modular housing if we want to meet this pace. Um, and so, you know, don't think of necessarily the cookie cutter uh, stretch into suburbia, those those identical houses. But do think of like row houses or brownstones in New York or, you know, some of those beautiful. We talked a little bit about some of the beautiful neighborhoods in Europe or Mexico City, uh, you know, in Paris and Amsterdam, where you've got these lovely townhouses. They're all pretty identical, um, but it's modular housing. It's a thing where you come up with your plan. Uh, you know, and then you maybe build some of it prefab in a factory, you know, a lot of it, and then you can roll these things out at speed. So people kind of, you know, we all grew up, myself included, with the dream of, you know, you open that magazine and like, ooh, look at that beautiful house. Like, this could be mine and nobody else's. Uh, I think we have to let go of that a little bit if we want to actually be able to have a home um, and we want our kids to have home and we want to live in communities where people are, are housed and, and there's a vibrant communal space you can still have a beautiful house that happens to be pretty much identical to the neighbors. Um, you know, you can make it, that gets into philosophical discussions of how you make it your own. But um, I, that, that was the key point, Dave, that, that everybody that I've spoken to really emphasized was like modular housing. Um, not, none of these, you know, not at, not, you're not going to build 5.8 million bespoke houses in the next 
you know, yeah. six years, yeah. seven years. Um, so that's a huge one. Uh, that's probably the single biggest thing that would ramp up the, the speed of this. And then, you know, all the little things you can eliminate red tape, uh, don't make it hard, you know, cause sometimes you add on the requirements and then you're adding on red tape. So yes, eliminate that. Um, uh, the, and zoning rules and that's why the province that i lived in bc they just like okay every town in british columbia you're no longer allowed to prohibit duplexes and fourplexes because it's a family home neighborhood that's that's off the table now so that actually speeds up the process because if you're a developer or a, or a homeowner and you want to build a fourplex somewhere now you don't have to go through town council and ask for permission and see if you can get a zoning except no none of that you can just do it right on um, so sweeping aside those kinds of lengthy boring red tapes um that's another big thing Arno, I've got to sweep you aside. I almost feel like there's room for a part <laughs> okay. three here. But uh, we'll, we'll... <laughs> hey, Arno, thank you always, as always, for getting up and be a part of the conversation. Talk to you hey, next I'm month. Good. See you next month. Thanks a lot. That's Arno Kopecki, journalist based in British Columbia. To learn more about the Task Force for Housing and Climate, visit housingandclimate.ca. That's housingandclimate.ca. Coming up next... What hobbies and activities do you have lined up for the winter months? Jenny Bovard, Megan Gilmore, and I will strap on the snow pants and offer up some suggestions. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You can feel that chill in the air. Old man winter is rattling their chain. Maybe it's like not all the way there yet, but uh, I don't know. I felt it in my bones last week in Montreal. Snow, ice, and everything in between means there are a bunch of outdoor activities to keep you busy in the cold months. So what winter hobbies and activities do you have lined up? Jenny Bovard, Megan Gilmore, and I have some ideas. Megan is a reporter for Canadian Affairs. Jenny is the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. Hello, Jenny. Hello, good day. And hello, Megan. Hello, everybody. So I don't mean to start this on a downer note, but I do want to offer up a little bit of vulnerability Winter really reinforces some of my isolation, and that definitely relates to disability. It's cold, it's snowy, I can't drive. It kills a bit of my motivation to grab life by the icicles. Megan, how does winter influence your overall disability experience? Okay, so the first thing that I notice every year is the number of people who ask me if I need help walking. And uh, there seems to be a concern that I cannot see black ice, to which I always want to say, somewhat snarkily, no one can see black ice. That is literally <laughs> like what it is. That is what it is. We are all in the same, same snowy situation here, people with black ice, okay? Um, so sometimes I actually think I have a bit of an advantage because I feel like I'm probably... I've been probably like trained to walk more cautiously than fully sighted people. But that's definitely the first thing I notice is me trying to understand why people don't realize that sighted people can't see black ice either. Someone can just <laughs> figure that out for me. But besides that, no, definitely the isolation um, 
I live in Ottawa, uh, which is a beautiful winter city, and there are ample opportunities to snowshoe or cross-country ski, and we'll probably get into that later, except you need a vehicle. Uh, so that can be challenging because I feel like I always have to like piggyback on other people to mm. do things. And no matter how used you get to asking people for a lift, it still gets a little bit yeah. awkward from time to times. Uh, Jenny, yeah. I, I know the question's a bit Debbie Downer, but I think a little bit of honesty off the top is at least reasonable and fair. I think it is fair to say that the winter, the seasons changing, it does influence how often, what time of day and like how I get out of the house. But I should also say that I think kind of going back to the black ice thing, it it kind of affects all of us, I think, whether we live with a disability or not. And I mm. think we should not have any shame in taking some more time inside if if it means staying safe and just avoiding the crappy weather. I don't think there's any shame there, but some like there are so many factors that influence whether I'm going to go out to that play with live description. I'm a recent convert to the theater, so I might be doing that this winter. But whether I show up to that or whether I show up to the holiday party there are a lot of factors. The not driving is a big one, right? Trying to rely on public transportation when the weather is miserable, waiting for the sidewalks to be adequately cleared when it does snow. I should say we're pretty lucky in Halifax in that when it does snow, it doesn't hang around for very long. Mm. And I too still do not have enough friends who drive. Uh, and I need to get better at accepting and asking for those drives. But the days are shorter too. So when it's dark, that really affects my vision when there's a lot of traffic, how I get around at night or at 4 p.m. this time of year yeah, yeah. is different, right? I bring my cane more often for sure. So there's there are definitely re like there are real things that we need to consider. Jenny, I want to pose this question to you first because I think I know Megan's answer, but I want to know yours. Outdoor skating. What's your vibe on doing a little skating outdoors on a pond or a river or a canal? Well, I don't really have access, Dave, to the pond, the secluded river, the canal. I do have access to public skating venues in the city, though. Outdoor skating, I should say, is a whole vibe in itself. It's such a fun way, I find, to get outside when it's cold and to not be cold because you're in motion. You've got the hot chocolate on deck. Maybe it's a grown-up hot chocolate. I don't know. But it's something that we could always afford to do as a family growing up. So it's something that sort of I know that I've been exposed to. And I learned to skate on a kind of uneven surface. It was at a, a park in, in Moncton, New Brunswick, where it's it's sort of like a pond loop type thing, but it's in the city. And I would just learn to react to those bumps and lumps on my figure skates and kind of stick with my people so I don't get lost in the crowd. Mm. And I continue to skate at least a few times a year there's the amara oval here in halifax and you can skate for free there and you can even borrow skates if you don't have your own oh wow and it's public transit accessible i've graduated to hockey skates they're much much faster but i do go a little slower on the really bright days and if there's a lot of people on the ice maybe i'll even take the arm of the person that i'm with but I think it can it can be accessible, and I think it might be more accessible within a city because, for example, at this Oval in Halifax, we have 
uh, the supports for people who are maybe newbies or who need a little bit of extra support when they're on the ice. It's a device that you can actually lean on and learn to skate. Uh, one thing I think that would be really nice is like a low sensory skating time because it can be a lot. And mm -hmm. I have bumped into people. That that's a very good point. That if it gets oh, quite yeah. crowded, it can be it can be a little bit difficult. Megan, the reason why I held off asking you the question here for a moment is because you know you live in Ottawa, uh, not far <laughs> from the largest outdoor skating rink uh, yeah. in the world. What's your vibe mm -hmm. on outdoor skating? Right. So it is literally five-ish minutes away from me. Although, like, to get to the canal, Dave, you would understand that you have to go underneath like a highway <laughs> yeah, it's actually like, really dangerous so you're just like well wait, like have we not figured out a better system okay no <laughs> um the drivers like it is understood it's a if you people who are in Ottawa understand this if you come here to visit us hopefully our canal freezes this year like the drivers understand that there's going to be pedestrians in the middle of the highway but it's still a strange a strange experience um so I'm a terrible skater like I'm awful and I need to relearn it because my niece and nephews are 10 bazillion times better than me. And this is just <laughs> too embarrassing now. Um, but the canal, the Rideau Canal, when it freezes, um, does have a section for walking. Like, you can just walk along the canal. And it is, true. like, except when it's crazy busy, it's actually very peaceful and lovely and wonderful. And it is my favorite way to, like, just walk somewhere mm. in Ottawa once I manage the crazy road crossing thing to get there. Um, so I, I do, I do think it's lovely. I, I prefer outdoor scene like Jenny. I prefer if there's less people there, partly for ice quality, partly for crowdedness. Um, and there are some outdoor rinks near me that yeah. I control, like go in the early, early morning or whatever, like literally nobody's there and you can like just be a terrible skater and no one's going <laughs> to judge you. They usually open up a great one around city hall in Ottawa, which is mm. uh, super cool with fun lights and stuff. Uh, you know, I, I praise Ottawa a lot on this city winter in Ottawa. There's something really spectacular about yeah. watching people skate into work along the canal in the morning oh, yes. and then coming from the river parkway, people cross country skiing into work in the morning it's just like such it, it jenny you and i talked about public art in a city a couple of weeks ago i think the way in which people transport themselves to work can also really speak to the uh, to the flavor of a community speaking of local jenny you live out there by the atlantic ocean in halifax do people mess around with the ocean during the winter in uh, the hrm Apparently, people do. I am not one of these people. So I did have to do a little research on this question, Dave. But according to the Halifax Surf School, yes, they do surf in the ocean during the winter months. Their website says in recent years, apparently winter surfing in cold weather destinations has become increasingly popular. The primary reason is that for experienced surfers, the better conditions happen during the cold months. Oh my gosh. And apparently not a good time for maybe like a family surfing lesson for the first time. But if you're <laughs> experienced, the website says, hey, come come on out. Winter surfing is welcomed for Nova Scotians. So I will not see you out there. But if you are brave enough, it's a thing. People do it. Megan, I'm not sure I like the ocean even in the summer months. What would it take for me to get you on a surfboard in the ocean in the winter? Oh, like it's not happening. Like, <laughs> I, I'm a terrible swimmer. I just think this is dangerous. No, 
Okay. No, I'll watch. I will bundle up <laughs> on the on the beach. We can I will cheer. Watch. Yeah, I will cheer and pretend I can see what you're doing, and it'll be great. <laughs> Jeff, I'll be I'll be ocean adjacent, not in the yeah. ocean in the winter. Yeah, I'll be making hot chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, speaking of shoulder activities and adjacent activities, I'm curious where you both land on skiing. I used to downhill mm -hmm. ski as a youth. I was never good at it, but I liked it. As an adult. I think I might actually like some of the shoulder activities, the après ski, the hot tub, maybe renting a cabin for the weekend. And I do want to give some huge props to organizations like the Ski Hawks, who have adaptive skiing programs for people from the blindness community. So circling back here, Megan, speaking mm -hmm. of the Ski Hawks, Ottawa Ski Hawks, not far from you, oh. where do you land on skiing? Okay, I did not know that they were in Ottawa, so yeah, thank you for that. They're um, great. They do awesome yeah. work. Okay, awesome. That's good. For, thank you. Uh, this is why I come on the show to play in my life. Uh, so many years ago, when I when I lived in Whitehorse, Yukon, Whitehorse has phenomenal cross country ski trails. Um, if you would like to go cross country skiing in the winter, please head to Whitehorse. In the summer, those trails are often good for mountain biking. Uh, so I was taking cross country ski lessons. I wasn't very good, uh, but I found it really like therapeutic and helpful, and it's like beautiful out there. Um, I think I'm getting more into snowshoeing, actually. Oh. I think that's going to be my thing. Yeah, I find it easier to manage. Um, yeah, I think I think I'm like I'm looking into getting snowshoes again. There it does raise the question about like getting rides, but I think I have enough friends who have snowshoes <laughs> that I can just kind of like see what's going and see if they can pick me up. But yeah, I'm thinking of thinking of uh, snowshoeing and then checking out the ski hawks to see if they do like very beginner cross country oh. ski stuff. So I think they do a little bit more downhill, but I but I bet you there's some organization in Ottawa that's also working on the the cross country uh, side of the okay. equation. Uh, Jenny, I'm not sure how many mountains you have in your neck of the woods, but where do you land on skiing? Uh, probably on my backside in some <laughs> padded pants. Um, there are a lot of things that I enjoy doing that I don't excel in. So again, don't don't feel bad about about not excelling at at downhill skiing, Dave. And uh, I. Yeah, when it comes to skiing, it's kind of like the ocean for me, where it's like, I feel like it's kind of bright out there for me. And again, transportation, I think would be a challenge. Yeah, big time, big time. But I do know a lot of, of a lot of accomplished and recreational type skiers who are blind or visually impaired or have different types of disabilities. There are lots of programs, like you mentioned, uh, in, in even in our neck of the woods here, even though we're not like a ski capital uh, it's just skiing is just not something I was ever really exposed to. Like the family ski trips were not really a, a thing growing up and transportation, I think, was a big thing. Now, I have to say I did live in Banff, which is a ski snowboard capital over a winter. And I worked two jobs that winter to help pay off student loans and didn't go skiing once. So, <laughs> um, but I, I'm there for the lodge. I'm there for the hot tub. Sign me up. The hot chocolate, the fireplace. I'm there. The hot tub, the sauna, the steam room, the après ski. Yeah, that sounds that sounds good to me. Hey, guys, I know it's a little early. I know it's not quite winter, but I'm sure y'all are feeling it in your bones a little bit too. Thank you for offering up some suggestions to make these months go by a little bit faster and a little bit funner. Jenny, have a great day. Thank you so much. Megan, all the best to you. Talk to you next week. All right. Have a good day, everyone. That's Megan Gilmore, a reporter for Canadian Affairs, and Jenny Bovard, the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. Coming up after the break, you'll find out what's coming up on Kelly and Rumia this afternoon on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Only about six minutes left in this show. However, live programming continues this afternoon when Kelly and Ramya hit the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern time. And Ramya Anwithan is going to tell you what the top line item on the show will be today. Hello, Ramya. Hello, we're doing part two of the history of television, and today we're focusing on the history of TV dramas with Ooh. Greg David. Mm-hmm. Oh, always like catching up with Greg. Greg's stopping by the show on Friday as well. So nice. that's just a little taster and a moose-bouche. Kelly and Ramya, 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI. Alex Smythe, you've got a story here that I played a clip of in the first segment of the show, but it's worth revisiting about carbon price policies. Yeah, Dave. So it's a, a new poll suggests that a majority of Canadians support pauses on the carbon tax pricing for home energy, and Sarah Ritchie has the numbers. The Liberals announced in October that they're pausing the carbon price on home heating oil for three years to give people time to switch over to electric heat pumps. Polling firm Leger surveyed more than 1,500 Canadians online asking a range of questions about the carbon price and the pause. 63% of respondents say they support the move and it's most popular in Atlantic Canada where the policy will have the biggest impact. About a third of homes in the region use heating oil. 70% of the people surveyed say they would support the government expanding the exemption to include all other forms of home heating fuel. Sarah Ritchie, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Really surprising to me, just the, the the numbers that came out of the majority really supporting the pauses and wanting to see it expanded. So I, I wanted to kind of bring this to the round table and find out, like, to me, this seems like another example of people wanting environmental policies, <laughs> yeah. but not wanting to pay for it. So, like, I, I, I kind of curious, like, what would you like to see done in this situation? Clearly, the public don't want to see them having to pay for it. But Ramya, what would you like to see done? Yeah, exactly. Yesterday on the show on Killing Remy, we were talking about this, right? Like the individual impact versus um, who we'd like to point the fingers to and say, you, you got to take care of this stuff. And, you know, we can all empathize and say, yeah, the right thing, the wrong thing. But um, uh, unfortunately, like, I think we're still leaning so heavily on people of power to make the actual differences. And we don't show or can't take uh, our own personal accountability or simply just don't think that our own accountability has enough of an impact yeah when it comes to carbon pricing like carbon pricing isn't necessarily a climate policy in and Mm -hmm. of itself it requires it requires a bigger broader plan but alex you hit the nail on the head there it's like everything in life we have an affordable housing crisis we need more homes okay well it's going to cost two trillion dollars of public money if you really want to solve it oh no i don't want my taxes to go up Uh, even today top line item on the on the fall economic update oh the deficit is still 40 billion dollars we need cuts okay what do you want to cut you want to cut health care you want to cut the military no 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 oh you want to not do the disability tax credit no no, 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 no. We need that too. So Alex, I think you really hit the nail on the head here that in life you have to make investments and people will always, if they want to, put their own personal experience ahead of broader policy, right? It's it's the common good versus the collective good versus the individual good. Not, not that the individual good doesn't have merit, but it's really easy for someone to say, I want this problem to be solved, but I'm not the one who's going to make a sacrifice to solve it. 
Yeah, and, and uh, you know, even on the much smaller scale of, like, impacts, it's when we saw the, the environmental policies of single-use plastic, which is still going back and forth in the courts oh and, and through politics, <laughs> you know, it's like I, I asked it while you were away, Dave, on a daily poll of would you use single-use plastics again if they become available? And it, it, it garnered a lot of response. Some people said yes because of the convenience. Some people said yes because of accessibility issues. But then you, the, you posed a question of, like, well, if less say, you know, plastic straws or something that is valuable to you for from an accessibility standpoint or a, a convenience standpoint, why not already take that with you? Why be reliant on someone else to provide that for you? So it's like these types of questions where it's like we can be more conscious about our impact, our role we're playing in these broader discussions instead of just Oh, I don't want to be a part of this at all. I don't want to have to give up anything yep. and still reap the benefits. <laughs> yeah, don't get me started on plastic bags. My apartment is currently overrun with reusable bags, uh, yeah. and I use basically one. I use one reusable oh. bag until it tears, and then I use a different one. <laughs> yeah, Ramya, I, I don't know. I just it really it really feels like sometimes people look at these things with a little bit of a short sight or a short term view rather than the bigger picture. Obviously, and you have a billion, uh, you know, reusable bags at home. It's a matter of taking them with you. I can't even remember to take bags with me. <laughs> yeah. Just take it so the next time I'm not purchasing another bag. Like, it's ridiculous, but it's true. <laughs> we're used to what we're used to, and uh, we don't necessarily even think consciously about how to change that on a daily basis. The reusable bag that you're made me, making me buy to literally carry out all the things that are wrapped in <laughs> plastic that I bought at the grocery right. store, right? Oh. The deep ironies of it all. Alex, I'm sorry. I know you probably wanted to have a sincere conversation about this, but I've been uproarious all day, all full of beans, yeah. mostly coffee beans. Thank you for bringing this topic to the table. Thank you, Dave. Ramya, you have a great day as well. You too, Dave. That's Ramya Amuthan and Alex Smythe. That's all the time there is for the show today. Don't you worry. The show's coming back tomorrow. This is Canada, Jack. We're not taking American Thanksgiving off. We're working. I'm taking Friday off, but don't worry, Alex is filling in for me. Football doesn't start till noon, so you know, why, why wouldn't I work in the morning? Then I can slather myself in gravy and football. Until 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.